All right, good to see everybody again this morning. Welcome to those of you joining us online. So I kind of want to start today by stepping back a little bit, because this is a pretty heavy teaching. If you look at those words, you listen to Kemi read that, there's a lot there. There's a a really strong hit we're going to see today. And then next week, it's going to even be harder. But there's a tremendous amount of grace and a tremendous amount of encouragement in all of this. And that's why I think it's important to step back to make sure we see this. So as you know, for more than a year now, we've been in Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And that letter is basically broke down into six unique, very specific chapters, where the first half, the first three chapters, they're all about belief, the doctrines of our faith. And then the second half, which we've been in since about January or so, they're all about behaviors, how we respond to our belief, and in particular, the behaviors of the church and the behaviors of individuals. And as we know, belief and behavior are intrinsically linked. Whatever it is that we believe, it shapes our behavior. Now, people profess all sorts of beliefs out there, but if you really want to know what they truly believe, just watch their behavior. Now, if we believe Jesus is who he says he is, if we've placed our faith in him, meaning we believe in him, then we've been born again into a new life in Christ, and our behavior should now be in step with our beliefs. And that's basically Paul's main point throughout this entire letter that he writes. It's not something that we do, it's something that's done to us by God's grace as he gives us a new life in Christ. And in that moment, when he does, we're saved from that wide, dark path that leads to eternal destruction that you see up there. And we're now on the well-lighted, narrow path to holiness. As we've learned, salvation is a process that unfolds over time, and it's characterized by those three words you see up there. Justified, sanctified, and glorified. Justification means we've been saved. Sanctification means we are being saved. And glorification means we will one day be saved. So that's the totality of salvation. Those three words are so important because they capture it. And they are what happens in our lives so that we can be in God's presence. The holy God of the universe, the creator and sustainer, to be in his presence, we too must be holy. Now justified means we've been set apart, made right by that red drop of blood you see up there. That's what we mean when we say born again. And it happens the moment we place our faith in Jesus. Then we receive the Holy Spirit who walks us hand in hand down that well-lighted, narrow path to holiness, sanctifying us day by day, making us more Christ-like as we grow up and as we progress in holiness until we reach that narrow gate where we will be glorified, all remaining sin removed so that we can stand in God's presence, perfectly holy for all eternity. That is salvation in its totality. That is what we believe. And as Paul's been showing us for the past few months, that path to holiness then is marked by the putting off of the old self and putting on of the new self so that we just can't profess a faith, come to church whenever it fits our schedule, and assume we're good because that's not at all we sign up for whenever we place our faith in Jesus. No, being born again means a completely transformed life. It's dying to the old self in all humility and living for God's glory alone. That's why those words are up there. It's this life of habitual repentance, a continual turning from 
or putting off the things of the world and a turning to and putting on the things of Jesus so that we can imitate God, become more like Him in holiness, living a life of love. It is perhaps, in fact it is, our highest calling in life. And then last week we learned that we can't progress along that path to holiness and still be riding dirty. Meaning, we can't live like everything is good. We're walking hand in hand with the Holy Spirit, but instead, we're secretly grieving Him because we're riding dirty. We're driving with some hidden form of illegality in our lives. In other words, we're rolling down the road of life in that happy little yellow hipster car you see up there. Not speeding, all our lights are working, we're obeying all those traffic rules. So the chances are, if we get pulled, pulled over, we're not, the cops are not going to pull us over. That is not going to happen because we're looking good on the outside. But if we ended up getting pulled over, we'd be in some trouble. There'd be some consequences for what we're doing because we're being sneaky about some of those things you see up there on that wall. We're riding dirty. We look the part, we seem like we're a good Christian, but we're secretly holding on to the sin in our lives. And that kind of behavior is completely out of step for what it means to be born again into a new life in Christ. I suppose it's no different than whenever we join an organization like the Girl Scouts or the Boy Scouts. There's this standard of conduct that we must hold to if we're going to be part of those organizations. For example, when I was an army officer, I had to behave in certain ways. I couldn't have long hair. I couldn't be overweight. I had to qualify on my weapon, meet certain physical standards like push-ups. I had to wear my uniform correctly. If there was a higher-ranking officer, I had to salute them or call them sir or ma'am. It's just part of being an army officer. Those were non-negotiable, meaning I couldn't be riding dirty, being sneaky about any of that stuff. I couldn't slack off on my push-ups or gain a few extra pounds. If I did, I couldn't be an army officer because there are real consequences associated with riding dirty. And Paul's going to teach us about one of the biggest consequences we might ever face. As he writes, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, all that riding dirty stuff, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. No inheritance in the kingdom. So this is pretty weighty stuff. But again, we're going to find at the end of all of this, there's a tremendous amount of grace and encouragement in this. So let's go ahead and start with the opening clause. For you may be sure of this. Now everything Paul has written to date has been the truth. And we know this because it's part of God's revelation. And he asserts it with all the confidence of knowing that what he is teaching actually is truth because it came from God. That's how he received it. And yet this is perhaps his strongest language so far as he writes, for you may be sure of this. So he's making a statement here. He's not messing around. So don't even think for one minute that you can take this lightly. Yeah, you may still be able to operate your vehicle riding dirty. You may be able to get to work, go pick up your groceries, but you are not driving it through that narrow gate up there. Paul is stating this in no uncertain terms. So just in case you want to start playing fast and loose, let me just tell you what's at stake. No inheritance in the kingdom. Now perhaps he had to resort to this kind of language because the saints in Ephesus started to get a little casual, just like we do. 
we all have the tendency to start becoming careless, complacent, or even cavalier with the sin in our lives. After all, what's the big deal if I lust after someone else in my own heart? Or so what if I covet money and status? It's not really hurting anyone else. I mean, after all, God wants me to be happy, doesn't he? These things make me happy. Well, as we learned last week, if we're born again, they shouldn't make us happy. We should actually find them all pretty repulsive. And that may be why Paul takes such a strong position here. Because happiness is not our objective. Holiness is. Paul's been teaching us now for four months about this. It's one of the biggest lies that the devil tells us. Nowhere do we find happiness as the object of our efforts in life. Sure, happiness is a byproduct of glorifying God, but it's not our life's objective. Glorifying God is our life's objective. And how do we do that? By being holy. God says, be holy because I am holy. That is how we imitate God. You want happy? Be holy. All other roads that you think lead to happiness, they're all fleeting. They're all based on lies. Saints can never find happiness in sin. It's counter to their new nature. So make no mistake about it. There's a city on the other side of that narrow gate up there, and it is a holy city. And nothing is coming through that gate that isn't holy. That is why we are on the path to holiness. It's why we've been given the Holy Spirit to make us holy, because that's what it means to be born again. So there are certain behaviors that mark God's adopted children, and the things we're about to talk about today, they aren't any of them. It's just like you can't be overweight or not able to do your push-ups and still be in the army. Well, if you want to be in the Lord's army, you can't be sexually immoral, impure, covetous, or an idolater. You must be holy, kind, tender-hearted, forgiving, walking in love, as Paul has been teaching us over the past few weeks. Paul uses this strong language to make sure we're somehow not mistaken about this truth. So now let's remind ourselves about these behaviors that we must avoid. We hit them last week, so we're not going to go into great detail here. And while you look at them, you can see there's four very specific words. They actually boil down to two main categories, sex and money. Recall, sexual immorality is any form of sex outside of the covenant of marriage. Sex is a gift from God, and he designed exclusively between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. Of course, the second category all boils down to money and all things that come with it. Now, as you guys know, I'm an economist. Money's important. We all have to have money to, to buy necessities in life. You know this, um, to buy our food, to buy shelter, uh, just to take care of ourselves. So we're not saying that it's completely bad. What we're saying is that we can allow it to become more than it should be, where it moves to greed and the worship of all false gods associated with it, such as status and wealth. And as we learned last week, this is all that sneaky stuff. It's that stuff we don't like to talk about. And we know this because these aren't topics that come up typically at the family's Thanksgiving dinner, do they? So it fits in that riding dirty category. So we can profess a faith, even come to church regularly, and still be engaged in the secret, sneaky, sexual, and monetary activities that are counter to pursuing a life of holiness. 
Now, before we get into this further, I actually think it's helpful to think a little harder about why it may be that Paul chooses these two categories. Because there's any number he could have picked. But he chooses sex and money for a reason. And I suppose there's a couple of them. First, they're widespread. And that's because they're both highly infectious diseases. When we get caught up in either of these activities, they not only infect the totality of our lives, but they can so easily corrupt all those around us. Second, they happen to be items that the world celebrates. They're even held in the highest regards. For example, we extol all things attractive, the things that fuel sexual promiscuity, hard bodies, suggestive clothing, flirtatious behavior, the things that draw a second look from us. And of course, we even give standing ovations to those who have amassed great wealth and status. You know what I'm talking about, the important people. We show them favoritism by elevating them and giving them special treatment. Third, and perhaps most consistent with Paul's teaching here, is that they so quickly become idols in our lives. In other words, they replace God, taking a prominent position at the center of our lives. Now perhaps the best example I could think of to illustrate this um, really comes out of premarital counseling that I get to do pretty regularly, and I see this routinely. Nowadays, for whatever reason, couples who are getting ready to, be, to get married, they've already moved in, they already live together. Now, that's a particularly hard thing to take on. If you're in that moment having counseling, that's a hard thing. And also, as I was thinking about using this example today, it's a hard thing for many people out there because some of you all have done this, right? But one of the things we do, one of the tenets we have in our church is that we love you enough to tell you the truth. So there's no judgment here, but even in those moments where I'm counseling young couples, I have to tell them the truth and I have to confront this thing. And whenever we discuss it, all attempts at them rationalizing their decision essentially boil down to these two issues, sex and money. They say something like this, well, you know, it's important that we try on this whole living together thing and all it involves. Translate, sex. After all, we don't want to commit to something that we don't like or something that doesn't make us happy. Besides, we're getting married in just a few months and it saves a whole lot on rent money. So you see, Paul didn't pick these two categories haphazardly. They drive so many of our decisions. If you all spend some time thinking about this, this afternoon and we start reflecting on the things in our lives that actually draw our focus, they pretty much boil down to these two topics. And that's because we've allowed them to become focal points in our lives. They have become idols. We don't often live with God's glory alone as the focus of our lives. It's far too often sex and money and that's because we choose happy over holy or what we believe to be happy and of course we all know it ends up being a lie and we choose that over the truth of holiness but hey it's only a few months until we get married what's the big deal everybody else is doing it anyway well paul tells us what the big deal is right here there's a consequence and an eternal one no inheritance in the kingdom so you tell me, not a big deal or not. And now, I know what you're thinking. Many of you are like, wait a second, this feels really Old Testament here. I thought I was saved by grace. This sounds really legalistic to me, as though I now have to be good enough to work my way into heaven. But that is not at all what Paul is saying here. 
That is a complete misunderstanding of this teaching. To see what I mean, notice how he ends the sentence. The kingdom of Christ and God. The kingdom of Christ and God. So there are not two separate kingdoms here. There's not an Old Testament and a New Testament kingdom. They're the same because Christ is God. He's the second person of the Trinity. So the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. He was perfectly holy then, and He's perfectly holy now. The bar to being in His presence has not changed. Remember, we must be holy because He is holy. What has changed, though, is that Jesus came to save us. He came to make a way. That's where the hope is. And it's a way that wasn't there in the Old Testament. Remember, Scripture says He's the way. He's the truth. And He is life. So we now progress in holiness in Christ alone. That's the answer to all of this. And that's all because of what Jesus did on the cross. So there's now a clear and very exciting threefold path that we can take to holiness. Because if we've been born again, then we have been justified. We are being sanctified right now, and we will be glorified one day. That is a truth that we find in Scripture. So there's no way that we can lose our salvation. The Holy Spirit in us guarantees it. So if we trip up and we have a lustful thought or experience some form of greed in our lives, we know what to do. We repent and then we move on. We don't sit there and dwell in it. We repent and we move on. But if we engage in habitual, unrepentant, sexual immorality or covet money and all that it brings and we're actually quite happy to be doing all of this, then we can only come to one of two possible conclusions here. First, we could be born again, but we are grieving the Holy Spirit of God. And as we learned, when we grieve the Holy Spirit, we do not progress down that path to holiness. We don't bear His fruit in our lives, and that's because we don't pursue God's glory as our sole objective. Rather, we've found another objective. Whatever it may be on that wide, dark path, probably related to sex and money, the things of the world that we just keep resisting putting off. Or second, perhaps, is that we're actually never born again in the first place. We've been fooling ourselves all along. We may have made a public profession, even been baptized. We attend church, at least on the holidays, we say God bless you whenever somebody sneezes. We try to cut back on that cursing in public. You know what I'm talking about. But we actually haven't been born again. We don't have the Holy Spirit in us as a seal for the day of redemption. We're just playing the parts. Oh, we'll say those famous words on the final day of judgment, Lord, Lord. But we'll also hear those dreaded words in response. I never knew you. That hits pretty hard when you think about that. Because if we aren't being sanctified, if we aren't becoming more holy each day, then it's quite possible that we may never have been justified or born again in the first place. Because those who are justified will be sanctified and they will be glorified. It is a promise that God made and His promises cannot be broken. So if we're not being sanctified, progressing in holiness, it can only be one of two things. Either we're grieving the Holy Spirit, or we've actually never been born again in the first place. So how do we tell the difference? Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones suggests that we start by looking at our response to this particular teaching. He suggests, if you hear this message today, and you're defensive, 
You're making excuses because you actually really love the sin that you're participating in. Then you may not be born again. At the very least, you're most certainly listening to the voice of accusation, the voice of the devil, who's been misleading you all along, lying to you by telling you that God wants you to be happy instead of holy, rejecting repentance and forgiveness, living a life of despair. Check yourself on this. These are really good questions to ask. But if instead this truth rattles you, you find it unsettling and convicting, then you may very well be born again, but you're grieving the Holy Spirit of God. And that is a terrible thing to do. That voice of conviction you're hearing right now is the voice of truth. And since the voice of truth comes from the Holy Spirit, it's always in step with Scripture. That's how you know it's His. It's the same convicting voice you heard the first time you placed your faith in Jesus. So it's a familiar voice. You know it. You know that any sex outside of marriage is wrong, whether it be lust, pornography, all of it. That's a truth. We find it in Scripture. You know financial reasons for living together out of wedlock do not trump God's Word. That's a truth. We find it in Scripture. And so it compels you to get on your knees to repent, to turn from your sinful ways so that you might live a life growing in holiness, built on God's promises, so that your whole outlook on life may become radiant with hope. And what I love so much about this kind of teaching is that it not only shows us the truth, but it also sanctifies us in the process. Do you see what I mean? Because if this truth has you rattled right now, well, that is the Holy Spirit using it to sanctify you, to make you holy to help you begin to progress down that path to holiness once again. And here's the thing. Regardless of where any of us in here sit right now, grieving the Holy Spirit or not yet born again, the response to our situation is exactly the same. In one word, repentance. That's it. We humble ourselves before the Lord. We turn from or we put off that nasty, foul stuff from back there on that wide, dark path that leads to eternal destruction, and we put on holiness. There's so much hope here. Do you see it? We have a way. We have a path. All is not lost. There is a way forward here. So what do I do if I'm living with my girlfriend? Well, Scripture tells us, repent. Neither get married today or go move out. What happens if my life is centered on money, material wealth, status, all that stuff that it brings? Well, Scripture tells us, repent and then give it to those in need. After all, that's why we labor. We don't labor to build up our estate to amass great wealth or take luxurious vacations. No, we do honest work so that we can give to those in need. Remember that sermon Paul taught us back in June? That's why we labor. So do you see how this all hangs together? Paul is not using these words as a threat. He's not contradicting himself and saying you've got to be good enough to get into heaven. These are words of grace. They're written to build up, to strengthen, to sanctify, to make us holy. Because if you've been born again, you're a new creation. You have a new life in Christ. So your sole focus is God's glory alone and spending eternity with Him. And if you have that hope in you, you'll do anything to prepare yourself for that great wedding day that's coming when the church becomes the bride of Christ. That's what living a life of repentance is all about. Putting off the sin, putting on holiness, 
and doing it for the key motivation of God's glory alone out of a spirit of thanksgiving. Not to be good enough to get into heaven, but because you're already in, because you've been born again into a new life in Christ. And you got to go get yourself ready for that great wedding day that we get to celebrate. We're going to be in God's presence for all eternity. And of course, as you ponder a message like this, is there any better way to set the stage for moving into communion? Because the sacrament of communion is so helpful for us to be reminded of the price Christ paid on that cross so that we could do this, so that we could have this gift of grace, this opportunity to repent. Now the communion table is open to all who've placed their faith in Jesus. As the writer of Hebrews tells us, there's never been the forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And under this new covenant, Christ's blood serves as the means to our forgiveness. Before Jesus went to the cross to shed his blood for you and me, he had a meal with his disciples, instituting communion between God and his people for all time. And as we know, the Apostle Paul instructs us to examine ourselves before we receive these elements. But remember, we're not examining ourselves to ensure that we're worthy because none of us in here are worthy. Rather, our focus in these quiet moments here is are we being humble? Are we coming to the cross in humility? Are our eyes fixed on God's glory alone? Do we have a spirit of repentance in us? So let's take the next few moments in the quiets of our hearts to confess our sin, to accept Christ's forgiveness, and to recommit ourselves in humble obedience to his service. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 